Maya Joel, who was normal, you know, housewife with four underage children, had her husband murdered. She had actually had her husband in her arms while, while he was dying. She had two choices. Either she simply, you know, moved from the region, from this small mm -hmm. town called Rondo do Pará, and, you know, tried to turn the page because she suspected that she would have, you know, to confront the elite, the economic and the political elites of the town. And in one of those momentous situations of her life, she decided to stay in that town, no matter the risk. What I found incredibly interesting for my book was exploring the feelings and the doubts and the controversies of a woman who would have chosen, you know, another life. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Heriberto Araujo, a journalist who spent the past eight years investigating the Amazon, the deforestation, the corruption, the exploitation, and the stories of the people who are both fighting to save it and who feel compelled to engage with such destruction. His book, Masters of the Lost Land, The Untold Story of the Amazon and the Violent Fight for the Last Frontier, was released this January, and he joined me to discuss those stories. He tells the tale of Maria Angelel, the widow of a murdered activist who has spent the past 20 years fighting for justice for her husband and attempting to protect the forest. He explains how illegal deforestation is actually rooted in land grabbing more than commodities and how that land grabbing is linked to inflation of all things in Brazil. He reveals the fraud and corruption that are facilitating these land grabs, explaining how crickets are used to falsify documents. And he paints a terrible picture of local impoverished people who are compelled to work in these destructive industries because they feel like they have no choice. Heriberto was also a correspondent in China before going to Brazil. And so he gives a very interesting analysis of China's relationship with Brazil as a trading partner, commenting on Lula's recent visit to Beijing and explains how China could actually be a key partner in protecting the Amazon. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. Heriberto, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. So you are an investigative journalist and you've been investigating the Amazon and what's going on in the Amazon for what coming up? Six, seven years now? So, yeah, I, let's say I started in 2015 and about till 2021, 22. And what took you there? So I was previously living in, in China. Uh, I was a China-based correspondent from 2007 to 2013. And uh, I struggled with pollution, as I think most Western journalists and I think uh, any, anyone who moves to, to China, especially Beijing. And when my newsroom, uh, you know, the editors proposed me to leave China and to move to another place, I thought that Brazil could eventually help me, you know, revitalize uh, being a, a, an Amazonian country, the largest Amazonian nation in the world. So it was perhaps a little bit naive. Uh, but I thought that I needed, you know, to go from one of the most polluted countries in the world to one of the most, you know, lush and natural countries in the world. So, uh, and then also Brazil was undergoing um, kind of a transformation, with, which was somehow similar to China because I moved to China when China was about to have the Olympic Games. And then mm. I moved to Brazil when Brazil was preparing the World Cup, 2014 World Cup, and then the 2016 Olympic Games. So it was this 
great, huge, uh, you know, um, country uh, kind of, you know, uh, waking up and doing uh, great things. So I thought that it would make sense, you know, for me uh, to to go and explore how uh, this time a democratic uh, uh, giant, you know, was kind of moving from a developing country to uh, towards a more developed uh, uh, nation. And then uh, I became fascinated with, with the Amazon uh, rainforest and its history. Did you know about the destruction that was going on in the Amazon before you went? Yes, let's say that um, as a reporter, uh, even when I was based in China and I was uh, very interested in what, what were the, you know, the side effects or consequences of China's uh, global hunt for natural resources, oil, raw materials, I was aware that there was this side effect in the Brazilian Amazon because it was still, it is still a kind of a frontier. But other than, you know, numbers uh, of the, uh, you know, the size of deforestation and uh, eventually, you know, knowing a little bit about some uncontacted indigenous tribes in the region, I have to be fair and I'd say that I knew very few before moving to Brazil. Okay. And then what was it in your work that put you on to um, the, the destruction of the rainforest? So it was kind of a, uh, I had a friend and a reporter as well, a foreign correspondent who was kind of provocative with me because uh, most foreign correspondents uh, in Brazil are based, unfortunately, I would say, uh, in the southeastern area of Brazil, which is this called Triangle of Power, which is Sao Paulo, um, Brasilia, and Rio. Right. So Sao Paulo being the financial and economic capital of Brazil, Brasilia, the economic power, the, the political power, sorry. And then Rio, you know, being the former uh, capital of Brazil and place where everyone wants to, <laughs> wants to move. And this is quite far from, from the Amazon region. You need to take uh, a flight and fly for at least two hours and a half to be in the Amazonian region. And I was kind of um, surprised when I talked with some, you know, experience for reporters in, in Rio and in Brasilia, you know, that they only, only went very occasionally and only when there was something really going on, you know, like breaking news. So the region for them was still a kind of a frontier in terms of, you know, of covering uh, the, the era. So I thought that I could find really great stories and I also wanted to know uh, this uh, amazing place and very complex place, uh, you know, uh, on field. I wanted to, to, to go there, to go there. So I had, of course, all these, you know, misconceptions of thinking that the whole Amazon was still an untouched, you know, forest and that you could, you know, suddenly feel, you know, this, uh, strength of the natural and so on. And, and the first time I went there, it was a kind of an eye-opening trip because I recall uh, flying to the uh, eastern border of the Amazon, which is actually the region where I, uh, years later, I would uh, devote time to to investigate my book. And I recall seeing, you know, polluted cities, uh, you know, getting trains in which I saw, you know, wagons, you know, transporting iron ore. I recall seeing, uh, you know, some fires uh, for uh, the purposes of deforestation. So what I saw, what I realized is that the region wasn't what I was expecting. And then I uh, devote some time, a couple of weeks, talking with some people, you know. Uh, so I talk with experts, I talk with indigenous uh, leaders, I talk with activists, I talk with ranchers. And I figured it out that that was a region where there was a lot of um, contest, a lot of uh, fight uh, for the control of resources. And when I began researching and reading, uh, you know, uh, virtually any, uh, book on, on the Amazon forest, either in Brazilian and in English, I realized that most books were devoted to the forest itself, the destruction of the forest, the story of the forest, but that we knew little about uh, some of the contemporary stories of human uh, um, and, and communities fighting for the resources. So I wanted to put the focus on the people instead of the forest. Not because the forest is not valuable, of course, the Amazon is fundamental 
for the planet for and to fight the climate crisis and for the rights of the indigenous people, which is uh, perhaps the number one priority. But um, I wanted to try to make the story or the story of my book, you know, a story that could sound familiar to international um, audiences. And for this, I need characters, I need people, and I need uh, personal stories. All right. Just before we jump into the book, out of interest, was the destruction of the Amazon being covered in Brazilian media, even if those foreign correspondents weren't going out? What's the media landscape in Brazil like for covering those stories? That was also a very interesting, you know, in the Brazilian media landscape, it was very interesting to see that the, I would say, the most, the well-known newspapers like Folha de São Paulo uh, or O Globo, they are also based in Sao Paulo and in Rio, and their main audiences are based also in the uh, capitals of Brazil. So the Amazon also for them still remains a kind of a journalistic frontier. Of course, they have uh, more coverage of what the foreign reporters, uh, uh, you know, foreign media outlets do have in the region. But it's not like if you are reading, if you were reading at that time every day the newspaper, you could see or read at least one story a week about the Amazon. No, only when there were, you know, some uh, police operations to fight against uh, illegal loggers or when, or when you had, you know, annual rates of deforestation being published, is that the Brazilian media, you know, could uh, quote those numbers and then perhaps send a reporter. That, of course, changed dramatically. And I think that was perhaps one of the few positive consequences of uh, Bolsonaro's government is that everyone realized in Brazil that what we knew about the Amazon was still, especially in those areas of Brazil, like Rio and Sao Paulo, was still uh, very few, especially if you compare with the importance of the region, and that, you know, more efforts were necessary to actually cover the region. And and I am aware that some of the uh, Brazilian uh, newspapers have now uh, uh, correspondence in, you know, like... Uh, see reporters that are based in, in cities like Manaus and, and Maraba uh, and Belém, which are three strategic uh, regions, and that the coverage has, uh, has improved. But at that time, when I moved to Brazil, to Brazil 2014, 2015, it was a still kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, region also for Brazilians. Many Brazilians, as an anecdote, you know, uh, travel and visit um, Europe and uh, the United States, but they do never visit uh, the Amazon. And that's something I was shocked when I knew about that. So just to clarify a point, are you saying that one of the good things that came out of the Bolsonaro government was due to the rapacious logging and the huge destruction of the environment and that being so evident that the media was then forced to cover it or take a look at it in a way that perhaps they hadn't felt obliged to previously? Yes, exactly. I think that Bolsonaro, uh, you know, unproposedly, he placed the Amazon region at the center of the political debate, both domestically and internationally. If you look at the uh, past elections in Brazil, almost since redemocratization, the Amazon rainforest was never one of the top priorities. Uh, there was no debate between candidates about what were the plans for the forest. Uh, despite it covers something like that goes from 57 to 60% of the Brazilian territory, which is an extraordinary amount. But uh, if you uh, go back to the uh, debates between Lula and Bolsonaro of the 2022 uh, elections, uh, you see that in almost every single debate they had, they talk about the rainforest. Mm -hmm. I think this is something which is despite everything positive, because it may, uh, you know, they should urgent. Yeah, absolutely. Right, let's get into the, the story of your book and the characters then. Who did you base this around? What are the human stories that are going on in the Amazon? I imagine it's a lot of like what's going on in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, a huge amount of corruption and elite involvement and, and murder at times. It is, but what pulled me into the story uh, wasn't any of this. 
um, what pulled me into the story was that I was at a conference in the Amazon with uh, Greenpeace Brazil, and then there was an activist uh, that came to me, and we were talking about some police operations that he had followed, you know, to hunt illegal loggers and all these very complex, you know, um, stories about why deforestation is taking place and so on. And then uh, I told him I would like to, you know, tell the story of a place, of a region through the eyes of one person or one family. And he told me, well, maybe you should go and meet Maria Joel, who is the uh, heroine of my character, who is the protagonist of my, of my book. And uh, at that time, he told me she was a widow, a woman who had her husband murdered at uh, uh, 20 years prior and that she had actually witnessed the murder. He was an oh, activist. And that she had actually had her husband in her arms while, while he was dying. And that she told me that she was living uh, already for um, for 21 or 22 years, you know, you know and the, under uh, police uh, protection. So I became curious about this story. I contacted Maya Joel through her lawyer. It wasn't an easy task to have her agree uh, with an interview. And then I went to this region, Rondon du Pará, which I would visit many times in the coming years uh, to try to explain the story of Maria Joel and her family and her murder husband, uh, uh, who everyone called Designio. Uh, he was uh, an activist. Uh, he was a land activist, uh, also a union leader. And while I was digging into their story, I realized that I also had to tell the story of this place, Rondon du Pará, which was founded in the late 60s. It was an area of untouched, uh, almost untouched forest where uncontacted indigenous tribes lived there until the Brazilian military government, the dictatorship, uh, kind of, you know, put uh, a plan together to completely uh, change uh, the face of, of that area of Brazil and turn that, uh, you know, Amazonian frontier into an, an area uh, of exploitation uh, for uh, resources, especially logging and ranching and, and land. So in the book, I explain the story of Rondon, while I also explain the story of Maya Joao through her story. Uh, you can, I think, uh, you can almost, you know, learn what has happened in the whole region uh, in the last half century, which is the crucial time to understand why the Amazon destruction is so such an urgent uh, issue today. And can you go into that? I mean, how, how much has been lost? Um, what, are the, what are the reasons for it? Which products are driving it? What is the political landscape as well that has um, facilitated such destruction? Who's trying to protect it? So according to scientists, we have something between 80, 18 to 21% of the whole Amazon uh, region uh, destroyed in Brazil. Mm -hmm. According to, to some scientists, the tipping point of destruction, which means when eventually a uh, power like the Amazon uh, rainforest, which is a natural power by itself, will begin to, you know, uh, uh, falter and have problems to actually survive as a bio, it's estimated in about 25 to 27% of destruction. So we are pretty close to the tipping uh, point. And the reason that that was also a misconception that I had originally, I saw that, you know, I, I, I read all those statistics about soybean being exported from Brazil, especially to China. And all those uh, exports of meat, Brazilian meat, which every year, you know, increases uh, dramatically. And I thought that the main driver were uh, commodities, raw materials. But the main driver of deforestation today uh, is uh, fight for land. Uh, the, the Amazon, great areas of the Amazon are still uh, in control, at least theoretically. Uh, of the Brazilian state, either the Brazilian federal state or, or the Brazilian states. And this creates an opportunity, especially for land grabbers, because 
uh, when you have an untouched forest or a, or a pretty pristine uh, uh, Amazonian forest, uh, and you have no actual control of that area, what many landowners and land grabbers and corrupted officers do um, is to deforest that area. There's an initial process of uh, illegal logging. Then they uh, engage in a process of uh, setting fire to the forest, which isn't easy in the case of the Amazon because it's a mm. very dense area. So they actually cut some uh, vegetation, let it, you know, to dry for several months. And this is the kind of uh, fuel that you need to actually set light forest. And once you have raised the whole area and you can turn that area into a ranch or a soybean uh, plantation, but in most cases it's, it's, a, it's a ranch or it's a pasture. They are uh, involved in fraud, in documental fraud. And this has uh, become uh, recently um, of interest of the global community because this is called in Brazil, in Brazilian Portuguese, grilage, which refers to cricket. Grillo is cricket. And the reason why they call this process of documental fraud, grillage uh, or, or cricket, is because in the past, but in the past I'm talking about a few years ago, um, they used crickets to uh, give the documents, the fake documents, an aspect uh, kind of uh, old uh, document. So what they do is, is the following. They would falsify uh, perhaps a notary public or a, a public registry date in the 1850. So during the Brazilian, uh, uh, the Portuguese uh, controls of, of Brazil during, during the colony, uh, saying that that piece of land was owned by that person, who of course is not anymore alive. But on the basis of that fake document, they would, create a trail of documents that, you know, points to someone alive and to the contemporary area as the legitimate owner of that. Uh, that, that. However, if you have a document that is almost two centuries old and it doesn't look like an old one, it's difficult to claim that this is true. So mm -hmm. the crickets are actually used for this. They, they place those, those documents into some uh, small boxes and they place, they place crickets there. And what they uh, do is that they eat some piece of paper. They also Gosh. chemical uh, a reaction that makes the, you know, this document to kind of look like a yellow document and very, very old. So this is called relagium. And it's kind of anecdotal, but the fraud is uh, massive. There are some states like the state of Pará, which is the state is the second largest state in Brazil, second largest Amazonian state, and is the one which uh, uh, I investigated in my book. And the amount of land claimed by landowners is three times the size, the actual size of the state. So you have uh, land grabbers claiming three times as much area as the as the state has. So this is, this is a paradox. This is an unsolved problem, um, of Brazil. And I would say this is the main reason, uh, that we are having the Amazon being deforested and also the Amazon being at the center of, uh, murders on, uh, the threats of environmental activists, including, of course, uh, indigenous people. If they are grabbing land in order to create pastures or ranches, can we not then say that it's still the drive for commodities that is facilitating or, or driving um, the destruction? It's a tricky question, but my two cent answer is no, because what the interest of those land grabbers isn't the produce of that pasture, but the control, the actual control of the land. Brazil has a, a historical problem, as many other Latin American countries, a historical problem with inflation, right? What we have been experiencing in Europe, uh, a two-digit inflation, you know, in recent months, uh, Brazilians had uh, not so uh, 
long time ago, a three-digit uh, uh, inflation problem. So if you could secure some hundreds of thousands of hectares land, and you, of course, have to invest in, as I said before, illegally logging that area, raising that area, this needs resources, financial resources to have, you know, manpower to go there and do that. Uh, but if you can secure that land in a time of, you know, spiraling inflation, that is a kind of, uh, you know, you are placing your bets into something that is not going to leave. Congress. So there, is, uh, there are a few great studies, especially during the 70s and the 80s, that showed that there is a directly between um, uh, inflation in Brazil and deforestation in some region. So we cannot generalize and say all deforestation is like that. It is true that we are having, you know, many areas that are, are being deforested. But it's still, and that I think is remarkable, and I think it's important to, to note, productivity, especially in the Amazon, of deforested areas in terms of cattle production is still very low. We are having less, in many areas, less than one uh, cow per hectare, which is really low. So if, uh, you know, a land grabber would be really interested in uh, expanding productivity or in uh, cattle ranching, I assume that they would invest heavily in improving productivity instead of simply having, you know, the cattle occupying an area that he or she claims it's uh, his own area when in fact it's owned by his this is fascinating. <laughs> There's a chapter of my book that I uh, go to explaining the, uh, you know, all the underground tricks of uh, grillage in Rondon mm. do Pará and in the whole Brazil because I was myself fascinated. I mean, what what's interesting uh, for me in particular is how sort of different this is to um, the deforestation of Southeast Asia, um, where most of the land is meant to be owned by local people, local landowners, and it's the state which is grabbing back um, through lots of different tricks as well. Um, not crickets, but not too dissimilar by the same token. And so to hear that it's sort of the other way around in, in Brazil is really, really interesting. Um, and equally, this link between inflation and deforestation. So essentially, local people are trying to protect themselves from economic instability in the future in a country that has been sort of, well, hung out to dry by the global economy time and time again. Yes. Uh, but we need to be very careful what we say about local people because sure. local people, which are, which are, you know, in general terms, indigenous populations, uh, who in Brazil control about 13, 13% of the whole Brazilian uh, landmass, uh, most of uh, of this uh, land is, is in the Amazon region. Uh, and then we are having many land, you know, family farmers, uh, small scale uh, harvesters. So this is the real local population in the Amazon. When I'm talking about land grabbing, those who are, who were pursuing, you know, uh, a kind of a safe bed, you know, against inflation, most of them are, uh, landowners or ranchers uh, mm -hmm. or companies who moved to the Amazon during the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, even today, uh, from the southeast region of Brazil. So mainly uh, uh, Sao Paulo, Minas Gerais, and other states like Espiritu Santo. Uh, there were, I would say, hundreds of thousands of uh, migrants, you know, pioneers, uh, who moved. Some of them were poor and were looking just for a plot. And they actually deforested. I would claim also to relage a few hectares because they wanted to resettle their families. A kind of a similar process uh, uh, that happened in the U.S. during the uh, you know during the West ex Western expansion. Uh, but there were of course many businessmen and wealthy families who saw an opportunity and decided to move to the Amazon to expand uh, dramatically, you know, the land that they, they could own. There are some cases, uh, 
which are kind of shocking. Uh, but there were some landowners that had, you know, uh, ranches or they claimed to have ranches inside of, of Cuba or Honduras. In so, yeah, it's a it's a it's a story of also of um, rich families uh, looking for opportunities also in in the Amazon. And one of these, two of these, of those families, are the uh, villains of my of my book, and are the ones who Maria Joel uh, have had to fight for almost for almost no, actually for over two decades uh, to try to have uh, justice for her husband, uh, murdered, her, her murdered uh, husband, and also some of the people that uh, she represented. Okay, no, this is now starting to sound very much like Southeast Asia and the tactics used there and the kinds of people that are moving in on the rainforest. So how did she go up against these very powerful individuals and corporations? How has she fought? Well, that, that was another thing that put me into the story because um, we have uh, many brave women, you know, and unfortunately their stories are not always as known as the male activist. But the case of Maya Joel, uh, despite I think she's one of the bravest persons I've ever met, you know, in my life, um, I think that she never really wanted to be an activist. She was a, a housewife struggling with the ambitions of her husband uh, who has who was fighting in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, all land grabbers or grilleros, because there is also the work get used for, uh, for the person who commits grillagem, which are called grilleros, uh, who was fighting, uh, land grabbing in Rondon du Pará. He was also, uh, fighting against unspeakable, uh, labor and human rights abuses, because we need to, uh, think that we need to realize that in the 70s and the 80s, deforesting a huge area of the Amazon uh, required a lot of manpower. Uh, chainsaws were limited. Oil was limited. So many landowners actually um, had middlemen uh, bringing hundreds of workers to manually uh, deforest the region. And many of those workers, um, after doing their work, they were never paid. Uh, some of them were in, um, kind of the victims of, uh, of, uh, what I think is a scandal up to, to, to today, uh, which is, uh, debt bondage. They were promised in their, uh, uh, villages that they will receive payment and food. And when they go to the ranch isolated, uh, they realize that they will never receive any monies because the food and the uh, tools that they employ for the work are, uh, overpriced and they are actually uh, permanently indebted no matter uh, how much they work. So mm. some of those workers, when they went to, uh, you know, uh, protest to their police, they were murdered and they were the uh, Zinho in the 90s, the husband of Maria Joel, uh, is told uh, about some clandestine uh, graveyards in, in some ranches in which some sources told him that there are some bodies of, uh, you know, uh, workers who have uh, claimed that they had the right to a pain. So the book actually opens with a police operation in which the senior is involved uh, and with a protected source uh, going deep into the forest to find a clandestine uh, graveyard of a person. And they do find uh, some, uh, some bodies there. Uh, so once Designo is murdered after years of the threats against him and against his family, uh, um, I won't explain how the, the murder happens, but I think it's one of the uh, reasons that also moved me, uh, to pull me to, to, to write the book. Maya Joel, who was, you know, uh, normal, you know, housewife with four underage uh, children uh, had two choices. Either she simply, you know, moved from the region, from this mm -hmm. small town called Rondo do Pará and, you know, kind of tried to turn the page because 
she suspected and and actually the justice proved that uh she suspected that she would have you know to confront the elite the economic and the political elites of the town or she stayed completely changed her life uh took over the job that her husband uh, had been doing for almost 20 years uh and to which she refused uh, to uh, actually, she she didn't want Designo to continue with her work because she suspected that something really bad could happen to him, and and continue fighting. And and one of those momentous, you know, situations of her life, she decided to stay in that town, no matter the risk for her and for her children. Uh, fight, uh, take over uh, Designo's job, and live up until. Today, under under uh, police protection, uh, because uh, she's been receiving that threat. So, uh, but what I what I, what what I kind of found incredibly interesting for my book was exploring the feelings and the doubts and the controversies of a woman who would have chosen, you know, another life. She didn't want to do this in mm. life, but she made some choices and she had to do, or at least she felt that she had to do some choice, some of those choices. And that was very fascinating for me because somehow brought me back in time to China because I had interviewed many Chinese activists, especially human rights activists, who were very stubborn persons and who I could feel they were somehow ready to face no matter what challenges, you know, in order to, you know, bring forward their, their, their work. But Maya Joel wasn't that person and her family neither. Her children, who are also important in the book and very important for her quest for justice, they didn't want that. They had many fights with Designo during the years in which he mm-hmm. was, you know, taking risks. So I, I, I found that this personal story was uh, extraordinary, really extraordinary. In addition to, of course, explaining the story of the Amazon. What an amazing woman. And tell me, what is the relationship like in that region then between the police and these illegal activities? Um, Because something that we sort of saw under Bolsonaro was that a lot of the state apparatus is kind of involved in facilitating the destruction of the rainforest, legal or otherwise. Um, But you say that Maria Angela was under police protection. Yes, well, I mean, when 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 you stay when you enter into a, a state protection program, so state witness protection uh, program, because she is the a key witness in in the case of yeah. her, right. her husband, uh, she was assigned some uh, policemen who weren't originally from that region. They bring some police from very far in Brazil, and there is a great rotation. So. Theoretically, uh, she is protected. Answering your question, I think that in terms of deforestation and human rights abuses, we need to differentiate what are state police in Brazil, which I think is much more vulnerable to corruption because they are underpaid and because they have top jobs and also because some people simply decide to enter into corruption. And then the federal police, which I think that in Brazil, has been, especially in the last two decades, has incredibly improved. And I would say they are really committed to fighting inequalities uh, in the whole country. Uh, the problem with the Amazon is that this is such a vast and remote still today area that it is difficult to actually have physically, you know, federal police uh, in every single uh, small town. Uh, in the region. Uh, so uh, most of the times these cases uh, are, uh, you know, dealt by the, by the police, which is much more vulnerable, as I've said, corruption. Right. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. And tell me then, uh, what is happening in Brazil right now since um, Lula was elected? Because obviously that was a huge sort of moment of victory or celebration at least, 
um, around the, the world for environmental campaigners. I have concern that the Amazon will cross the tipping point and become a, a carbon um, uh, emitter rather than a carbon sink. Um, what do you think so far of Lula's policies when it comes to protecting these vulnerable people and protecting the forest? Well, I think that Lula did what he had promised he was going to do, which is basically reestablishing the system of law and order that had been previously uh, created by the Brazilian state uh, to fight any kind of environmental criminal, including uh, some uh, land grabbers and uh, timber mafias uh, and gold mafias. I think that perhaps the clearest example of how things have changed, radically changed after Bolsonaro uh, left power uh, is what has happened in the Yanomami region, the north of Brazil, in the border with uh, Venezuela, which, was, which is the largest uh, indigenous uh, reservation in, in Brazil and was perhaps one of most remote and where we knew very few what was going on, but what we knew was really terrifying. We knew that there were uh, gold mafias uh, having helicopters, uh, fire guns, and controlling vast areas of the Yanomamis. And Lula uh, and, and uh, his government, I think that it's really great that he has decided uh, to have Marina Silva as uh, Minister of Environment again, and having uh, two uh, indigenous women occupying crucial uh, uh, jobs in his administration. They decided to do something which is really difficult, and is uh, sending the police, telling people, illegal gold miners, to move uh, out of the reservation or face the consequences. Uh, this has a human cost. Uh, we don't have to forget that uh, despite the uh, gold and timber trade is often controlled by uh, powerful and wealthy people, many of those who are actually, yeah. you know, working are... Yeah breadwinners, you know, and, and people who actually need uh, some of those jobs. So it is difficult to get into a, a region and say to virtually thousands of people, you need to leave. We are not going to provide anything for you. Mm. But I think he's, he's, he's been doing what, what he has uh, promised. Uh, I'm a little bit, not myself, but I've been speaking with some uh, top uh, officers and former top officers and experts, and they are a little bit, too, you know, they, they, they are reluctant to agree with the possibility that uh, Lula could deliver a Brazil with zero deforestation in the Amazon. I think this is something really difficult, especially when you, the dynamics of deforestation and illegal timber, you know, uh, being, uh, unfortunately, uh, the core of some of the uh, economies uh, in the region. If you are traveling some areas of the Amazon, you speak with people, uh, no matter they are, uh, you know, people who would like to see the Amazon, uh, you know, with zero deforestation. But what they tell you is that we want to continue uh, logging and we want to continue extracting gold because we don't have job opportunities, right? And many times when I was putting their quest these questions, you know, tough questions to uh, illegal lovers, they told me, well, but you have, you know, a cell phone and you have a car and perhaps you have a house and we want also to have the chance to have this. So we have to mm. work and we don't have any opportunities. So I think it's fair. Uh, but in general terms, I think that, um, what Lula, uh, has been doing, which is reversing what Do Bolsonaro did in four years is my opinion. And so far it's, it's, it's good for the region. Now. You um, were a correspondent in China, and you've written also about the relationship between Brazil and China. And um, certainly we've sort of seen in the past week in the press that there seems to be this surprise among Western politicians as to Lula's geopolitical relationships. Um, he seems to not be willing to fully ally himself with the West and um, sort of create relationships to the East as well. Could you comment on that? Well, I mean, I think this is no surprise. Uh, Lula was uh, in Beijing uh, during the weekend, if I'm not wrong, 
Yeah. And uh, he was having this reception with Xi Jinping. Uh, when Lula, during his first two terms, he was already very candid in his, uh, I would say, uh, policy, external policy to try to, uh, you know, strengthen the links, especially with the developing world. And China is a crucial trade partner of Brazil. I mean, uh, as now, uh, I, I need to check the latest numbers for 2023, but for 2022, the bilateral trade was something like 120 billion US dollars. Um, and what is incredible about this trade, and is, uh, I would say in terms of financial balance for Brazil is, is very positive, is that Brazil exports uh, more than what it imports from China, which is not easy if you consider <laughs> yes. the factory of the world. So this, is, this, this has been fundamental for the stability, the financial stability of a country like Brazil. They see Brazil, China as a strategic partner. Um, of course, soy, bean, uh, uh, beef, meat, uh, now uh, some pork meat, uh, oil, iron ore are, uh, you know, some of the uh, strategic products that Brazil have been exporting to China for almost 20 years. So I see, you know, uh, coherency in, in, in what Lula decided to do and and to kind of, uh, continue with this non-alignment policy. Uh, he uh, first traveled uh, after being elected to Washington, the Trump Road, um, and he was doing the uh, during the tour for the elections. He was in Europe as well. I think he wants the help of Europe, especially Europe, to try to get some funds uh, to actually, you know, put in place some real. Uh, law and order power in the Amazon to prevent deforestation. But I, I could hardly see why he would decide, you know, to take distance uh, from China uh, when you are, you know, having uh, such a crucial trade relationship. Mm, really interesting. I think these are sort of uh, geopolitical relationships that are often forgotten about in the discourse in the West. Um, when, a, <laughs> when a bilateral trade agreement doesn't actually include a Western country it tends to be sort of forgotten about and yet as you say um these partnerships are incredibly strategic and i i would like to add something about china mm -hmm. i've been uh, writing about these uh recently i recall a, a few pieces in, in the washington post that i wrote and also in the new york times is that if we want to find or if brazil wants to find a solution for the amazon uh a key partner is uh, China. Uh, the United States and the European Union, especially the European Union in the coming years, when we are going to have virtually any raw uh, material commodity coming from Brazil being tracked, so we are going to be able mm -hmm. to know what is the origin, have been doing, I think, a positive job uh, in trying to isolate illegal uh, uh, chain supplies uh, like gold or timber or meat. Yeah. However, if you are having a country like China that every single year uh, increases the uh, acquisition of raw material, I could hardly see how, you know, this policy of trying to, uh, you know, have uh, the illegal loggers or the illegal land grabbers, you know, uh, kind of finding no other way but to do things in the proper, in the proper way. So I think China is a crucial uh, country in terms of uh, saving the Amazon. And unfortunately, I haven't seen any real public, at least public, commitment uh, by the Chinese authorities or, uh, you know, uh, any uh, Chinese uh, top officer, including uh, Chinese state companies, are often the ones who are involved in importing some of those raw materials, saying we are going to put in place a system to actually, uh, you know, track the origin of those. Uh, China is mm -hmm. one of the few countries, uh, uh, perhaps not one of the few countries, but one of the 
few significant countries uh, who have decided to buy uh, meat cattle uh, uh, produced uh, in the in the Amazon. Uh, the U.S. and and, and the European Union uh, has uh, banned the import of uh, meat uh, that has origin uh, in the Amazon uh, rainforest, which I think is something which is uh, crucial. Mm, interesting. So. If they were to throw their weight behind uh, environmental protection regulations, that could have a really important impact. I think so, but I could hardly see why uh, China would decide to do something like this. Well, yeah, maybe not at this time. Okay, Heriberto, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've got pages of notes here. Um, thank you so much for your time. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? So when, when I was... Uh, I will answer your 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 question. I'll give you a name, but I want to just explain you why. Uh, when I was doing these uh, almost five years investigation um, of the story of Viagra, I always thought about the importance of rule of law and the importance of the international uh, community, especially uh, international courts. And I became fascinated by uh, climate litigation and international. Uh, climate uh, cases. So I would suggest uh, uh, Maria Antonia Tigre, who is now working at the uh, Columbia University. She's a Brazilian, uh, uh, spoken with her about the Amazon, but she's an expert on climate litigation, especially having a worldwide, you know, angle of how uh, people like Maria Joel, but many other communities are resorting to court uh, to try to find justice and stop not only deforestation, but also uh, some other uh, human rights abuses that often are linked to the destruction of their environment. All right, wonderful. I cannot wait to speak with her. Heriberto, thank you so much. Thank you, my pleasure. If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.